Hello and welcome to Recovery Internet Radio, broadcast live and direct from Straight Stuff Studios. Uh, usually live, we're, we're doing the uh, pre-recorded episode today that'll, that'll air live at our usual time, Sunday at 7. So thanks for being with us here tonight. I'm going to introduce our host this week and every week, Mr. Richard Atwater. <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, big hand here, you know, big hand for the host. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show tonight. Um, and uh, the, the uh, tag for the show this week is, is there a role for ibogaine in mainstream addiction treatment? And for those of you who don't know what ibogaine is, you'll find out as in the course of our, our talking. Um, and uh, so, again, thanks for joining us uh, tonight where we are every Sunday night at 7 o'clock. And uh, thanks to our engineer, Chris, for uh, handling this, all the technical uh, intricacies of getting us on air. Uh, and there generally are some technical intricacies. Um, uh, so uh, you, can, uh, you can tweet us at Rick Atwater, or you can get a hold of us at recoveryinternetradio.com. That's recoveryinternetradio.com. Uh, Any time for all of our archive shows and recovery resources, so we hope you check us out. Our, uh, our guests tonight are Dr. Martin Polanka and um, also uh, uh, Deanne Adamson. So uh, I hope I got that right, didn't I, Deanne? Yes, you did. Okay, good. All right. Um, so I think we'll we'll get started if you guys are ready with uh, with our talk. Um, I guess the first question I have is, where, what started your interest in ibogaine, and how long have you been using it uh, as a tool for uh, the treatment of addictions? So I've been interested in entheogenic and psychedelic medicines for many years, and I was trying to find help for a close family member who was struggling with addiction. This was 13 years ago, and I came across Ibogaine, and this was the only thing that helped her. I see. Okay. Okay. And did, you know, one of the other, one of the other questions that I guess I had in my mind is, how, did you, were there other, were there other people, like 13 years ago, were there other people using this for that purpose? There were. I took my uh, family member to see a person called Eric Taub, who was okay. working uh, in Florida at that time, and he's the one who, who helped her. So he, he was doing this um, before I was, and before him, it was Howard Lotsoff who was giving treatment. Um, so they were, they were, you know, the early pioneers in the treatment. Yeah, I've, and I've, I've read a little bit about, uh, about Howard, I believe, and he was kind of, he was pretty much of the, the advocate uh, the original advocate for ibogaine use was he more or less the original guy in this in the in the U.S. Very much so, and he was also the one who rediscovered ibogaine or discovered its use for addiction treatment. It has been used uh, for different purposes in the in Africa, but in the West, its use for addiction was discovered by Howard and was promoted by Howard and was popularized by Howard. I don't. Do you do you know? And it may not be a, a question that you can answer because I guess it's more about about his original discovery. But how did he find out that it was helpful? Was there a was there? I mean, you know, it's always interesting to me to you know scientific discovery how that happens. Was he? Did he 
think it might be helpful at one point and use it, or how did that happen, do you know? Well, like many discoveries, it was serendipity. He took it himself, and he discovered that the way his opiate withdrawal, he was, he was a heroin addict, ah, and he okay. took it just for the trip. And he did not like the trip, but when he came out of it, he, he realized that the, the withdrawal was gone and that he had no desire to use. So he, it, was, it was just by chance that this, this property of, of the medicine was discovered. That is, that is interesting. So he was, he was a heroin user himself, and that's how, that's how it happened. There was a, um, uh, I think it was a special segment on uh, national public radio, I want to say a couple of years ago, uh, about Ibogaine. Are you familiar with that at all? Did you, um, I think they were talking about the, its use in this country, in the, in the U.S., and at that time, I think it was already uh, not legal to do it. I don't think legal is the right term here, but um, unscheduled, I think, is the right term. Um, but it was still being used from time to time in places, um, you know, by people. And they, they described that in the in the uh, public radio interview. Did you hear it, or did you? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I'm familiar with that segment. And they they interview a, a guy called Dimitri who's being very active in the underground. He's, he's very prominent in the Ibogaine community, and he's helped a lot of people. He was giving treatments in the U.S. He's now in Costa Rica. But the use of Ibogaine in the U.S. is, is, is restricted and is illegal. It's, um, it's not approved. Um, which I, I know this, I, I, I'm going a little bit off the reservation here, but why is that? If it's helpful, and I, you know, I mean, I... You know, I have no personal experience, so I don't know. But if it's helpful, why is it restricted? Well, it was in the 1970s that it was scheduled by the Controlled Substances Act. And it was placed in Schedule 1, which is the most restrictive schedule for a drug. This, this schedule is for drugs that have no medical use and high potential for abuse. So it was misclassified because it was put in this, this category what, what other drugs would be in that category, just for, for instance? Heroin, crack cocaine, um, even marijuana is in that category. Cocaine is actually scheduled, too, so cocaine is, is even less restricted than Ibogaine. Okay. That's odd. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's completely misclassified. And it is, still, is it still classified that, in that fashion? It is. So it's it's a schedule one. Uh, I get where where do narcotics fall? Well, I mean heroin is schedule one, but morphine okay. would you know schedule three. So that, that really varies quite a lot, you know, depending on whether they have a, a use in in modern medicine, whether they're safe to use, and whether there's a potential for abuse. Okay, yeah, that's it. Doesn't seem. And, and my understanding is ibogaine was originally used by indigenous people in their religious practices, and it was and it's it's a hallucinogen, but it has a lot of unpleasant uh, side effects in its natural form. Am I right about that? Correct. I mean, ibogaine has been used traditionally as a rite of passage among a West African religion called Bwiti, mm -hmm. and it is used for psychospiritual healing. And over a century, it's been used for different um, treatments. It was used to combat fatigue. It was used to reduce 
high blood pressure. So it has a long history, and it's used for addiction treatment started in 1962. One of the things that that is a, a little bit, you know, it's it's somewhat puzzling. But here's the thing, you know, you know, a lot of the a lot of the traditional treatment for addiction in at least in the U.S. is although it's difficult to get anybody to talk about it, it has a spiritual base. But yet when we talk about a medicine that might have some properties of spiritual healing, it becomes not something that people even people even want to talk about that even less. Well, is there something wrong with spiritual healing? Or is that a topic we can't touch with medicine, by modern medicine, or what is that? Um, hi, Rick. I think that, you know, when it comes to spiritual healing, it's not measurable. It's not tangible. So okay. when it comes to, you know, science and medicine, it's going to be outside of empirical research. Um, this is one of the main reasons that people are attracted to Ibogaine as their detox and addiction treatment, because it goes beyond, you know, just, the physical detox and really addresses some of the, um, <clears throat> you know, deeper psychological aspects um, underlying addiction <clears throat> and recovery. Um, you know, with Ibogaine, people report, you know, going into their subconscious and really being able to access some of that stored pain and trauma and unresolved issues and some of that negative energy that is blocking them from healing, you know, so... Yeah. Uh, there are many other reasons that people are turning to Ibogaine other than addiction, although Crossroads typically just treats people for addiction and primarily opiate addiction. There's so many other benefits that are coming out of this, and it is the spiritual healing, the psychological healing, and even the, the physical, physiological, and neurological healing that is taking place, which is then opening a person up to um, create changes in their external world, in their relationships, in their life, in their careers. Okay, yeah, and, and that's that's the part that you know. It's almost like if you've been, uh, you know, I, I'll use the term marginalized. If I can, if I can use that term, if you've been marginalized by um, the medical community at large. Um, you know, if you've been looked at as a, you know, kind of a something that is uh, along the edges of acceptable treatment, you almost have to go out of your way to uh, make sure that it, it, you're, you're legitimate, you're showing your legitimacy to people. And then that's, you know, some of the other things that you're talking about get lost in that effort to stay medically legitimate somehow, because these are the things we don't hear about, Ibogaine, what you're just talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's true? Uh, I mean, do you think what I'm saying is accurate, or, 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 or am I just wrong about Ibogaine being marginalized? No, you're right. I mean, it, it has, you know, been pushed to the sidelines, and part of it is, it doesn't fit into the current paradigm of treatment for, for addiction. Pharmaceutical companies like uh, drugs that work on a single receptor, and Ibogaine works on multiple different receptors. And it doesn't fit into the profit model because it's a single administration modality. You know, pharmaceutical companies, they, 
they want treatments. They don't want cures. They want treatments which you take every single day and which manage the disease, but something which you only take once in your life is, is so far outside of their the norm that they, they just, you know, it, it won't make them any money. Right. That's, so not that's, something, that's not something that Pfizer wants to pursue. I, I got that. <laughs> I can, and I can see, I can pretty clearly see why. You said something about um, they're more interested in a single receptor, a, a drug that addresses a single receptor rather than multiple receptor. What is, tell, tell me what that, explain that to the audience a little bit because I think people might not understand that. Well, that um, when they do research, it's, they want something which is very clear, cut, and measurable. So when you have a drug which works in a single receptor, you can really tease apart the effects of it. Okay. But when, when you're dealing with addiction, you have to fight it at multiple levels. It's not going to be a drug which affects a single receptor that actually helps with the withdrawal and which helps with cravings and which helps with depression. So it's... Yeah. It has to do with the measurement of it, basically. It's not easy to measure the effects because of the multiple receptors. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's... So if it's that, then that would make it not fit very easily into uh, um, something that the FDA would approve. Correct. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's interesting. I, just, I you know, for uh, my dad was a chemist who worked uh, as a liaison between the pharmaceutical industry, the pharmaceutical company that he worked for, and the FDA. <laughs> so it's interesting that we're talking about this. Um, anyway, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, so I guess, I, I guess my next question is that, you know, you, uh, you're a doctor and yet you had a family member who had a problem and you went outside the accepted path of medical practice at that time, or maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but I, it seems like what would be called an alternative treatment. Can I ask why you took an alternative path rather than the the accepted medical path at the time? Mm-hmm. Well, we had tried the traditional and accepted path, and we had you know, done several attempts at rehab. Okay. It's just very difficult to break through the addictive thinking when the person doesn't even admit they have a problem. And uh, they're not going to be very receptive to therapy. But what I saw was that after I began, she took the necessary steps to move away from the addiction. She went back to school. She started practicing yoga. She started eating healthy. So it was a catalyst which pushed her in the right direction. It wasn't a cure, but it helped her see through all of the eagle defenses she had set up to protect her. So, her so I see. I, I, and then, so you had tried. You had tried other things. That's that was the you know and and had. I assume exhausted the the existing possibilities. Correct, and that is the majority of the patients that come visit us. They have tried rehab, some of them twenty times, and it just hasn't worked for them. So they're desperate, and they come to to take the treatment, which is, is for them scary and it's outside of the norm. And, and people try to talk them out of it, but it's it's very effective and it helps them, you know, break through and, and have that transformative experience. Yeah, I've read some of the uh, the testimonials by people that have been um, well not to to your clinic, Crossroads Clinic, uh, but also to other clinics, um, and they're 
pretty pretty convincing testimonials. Are you? Are, are, I assume you, you know you you run the clinic. I assume you've seen a lot of success stories. Yeah, it's it's really amazing to watch the transformation that people go through. You know, they come into the the clinic actively using, so they don't have to be detox. They come in using heroin or using oxycodone, mm-hmm. and we stabilize them, and then we detox them. And in a matter of three days, they they most of them have absolutely no desire to use, and their withdrawal is gone. There might be some residual effects which are manageable, but it's nothing compared to what they would go through if they had just quit cold turkey. So it's 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 really remarkable because there's no treatment like that in Western medicine that that can over the course of three days interrupt a, a you know pretty hardcore and heavy addiction. No, none that I none that I know of. And one of the things I do in my I'm a addictions counselor myself, and one of the things I do a lot of work with is opiate addiction. So. I, I know I know quite well that you're you're accurate about that. There's nothing like that here. Does does the ibogaine um, mediate the uh, the withdrawal symptoms themselves, or do you have to use other things along with the ibogaine to to do that, or is is detox first and then ibogaine later? How does that work? Well, ibogaine is the detox. Ibogaine takes away the withdrawal. Oh, it does. And, okay. Yeah. Because it works on so many different neuroreceptors, it, it addresses many of the issues associated with withdrawal. So it's not just the physical symptoms, but it's also the depression that is lifted. Um, when ibogaine is taken orally, it is metabolized by the liver into a substance called noribogaine. This is a fat-soluble molecule that stays in the body for 30 to 60 days, depending on how you metabolize the drug. And it's attaches to the mu and kappa opiate receptor. It's an agonist at those receptors. And this, this alleviates the post-acute withdrawal syndrome, mm-hmm. which is usually the reason why people relapse. Because even when you detox, you don't feel right for a period of time afterwards. You're unmotivated. You're depressed. You don't feel right in your skin. And people would just want to feel good again, and so they, so they end up relapsing. And Ibogaine takes care of that. So ibogaine will stay in the system that 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 first thirty to sixty days, the 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 post-acute withdrawal time period that where most people relapse is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, uh, what what do we know about the the history of its use? We talked a little bit about um, the the gentleman that was first doing it here in this in this country, and then. Uh, what what kind of what what's the the history? How did, you know how did it move you know into its current uh, status? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean it was um, it was made illegal, but then Howard Lotzoff worked very hard to gain mainstream scientific interest in this medicine so that they would research it. He finally got a doctor by the name of Deborah Mash to to take him seriously and to to really do proper clinical trials, and these trials were, were approved by the FDA and the DEA, and they were conducted at the University of Miami. They saw, you know, several patients, and they ran out of funding, so they had to take the trial outside of the country to St. Kitts, okay. and okay. over the course of years, they saw approximately 400 patients. So it, it was studied, and it's pretty well documented the effectiveness of this medicine in preclinical models and in clinical models. So that was, that was that was the pathway it's taken through the 
regulatory system. It just got stuck at the level where the pharmaceutical industry had to step in. They just weren't interested. And what years? What what years are we talking about when when uh, the the research went to St. Kitts and then we were at the next phase of the of the uh, trials where the pharmaceutical companies were? What are we talking about? Are we talking about the 90s or? It was the 90s, correct? Okay, all right. So it just basically it got hung up in the it got hung up in the system somewhere because it wasn't a valuable. Uh, it couldn't. It couldn't be demonstrated that it would be valuable enough for the pharmaceutical companies to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Well, that's a pretty lame reason, <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the pharmaceutical companies are there to show a profit for their shareholders. So their 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 job is to, you know, make profits, not to help people. Um, Unfortunately, so. probably that's yeah. You know, for the most part, that's accurate. Um, you know, you were going to say something, Chris? Yeah, you know what, I just, while we're on the subject of, of the legality in the United States, obviously, is the way it is, but um, it's, it's not scheduled in other countries, uh, Mexico, Canada. Is it, is it being used elsewhere around the world as a, as a treatment solution? It is. It's used in most of the world nowadays. It's just in six countries where it's illegal, U.S. being the main one. So there's treatment centers in Brazil. There's a very active treatment community in South Africa. There's treatment providers in Canada. So it's it's pretty widespread. It's just unknown in the U.S. because of its illegality. And where do you know where else it is illegal? Uh, some European countries, France, Sweden, uh, among others. Mm-hmm. And so it's really random. You know, there's most of them. There's there's really no reason why it got made illegal in France. It, it got made illegal because of, of some deaths that occurred. So the government tried to, to, to shut it down because people had died. Um, but in other countries, it was just really random. There, there's, there's really no reason why it's illegal. Okay. Yeah, like you were saying, even in here, I mean, that, that the, the illegality came in, in in the 70s when it might not have been fully understood what what benefit might might have come from it? It just kind of got lumped in with a category of other other substances. So it's interesting. Um, one of the other questions I had was: what, Are there other uses uh, for ibogaine other than uh, addiction treatment right now, or, or is that the primary uh, primary use of it? For us, it's uh, primary use. It's the focus of, of the clinic. We focus on opiate addiction. At other treatment centers, they treat patients who are suffering from depression. In Costa Rica, there's a treatment center that treats people with multiple sclerosis. So it has other uses, but the main use, which has been documented, is for treating opiate withdrawal. And will it be, uh, is ibogaine also used, even though, say, a drug like cocaine doesn't necessarily have a physical withdrawal uh, associated with it, but there's certainly the process of, of craving and the psychological withdrawal aspect. So would ibogaine be uh, useful in treating other addictions? It is useful. It uh, helps with cravings, and it also provides psychological insights into the addictive behavior. So any, any compulsive or addictive behavior can be potentially you know, um, helped by ibogaine. Okay. We focus on opiate addiction because there's a measurable, tangible effect which we can, you know, demonstrate to to patients. 
But yes, people are using it for alcohol addiction and cocaine and methamphetamines. And, you know, some people are even getting off methadone and Suboxone um, through the Ibogaine treatment as well. Well, that's good to know because, you know, uh, well, and you, all, you also mentioned it's, it's not just heroin, it's opiates because that would include all the, the uh, you know, prescription, you know, the, the oxy, uh, oxycodone and, the, and uh, all the rest of the popular uh, abused opiate drugs as well. So you treat those, those as well, I assume. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And, and honestly, that's a lot of the people who are seeking help. It's people who have become addicted to their pain medications after an injury, accident, surgery, um, you know, trying to deal with chronic pain. And eventually they realize that their tolerance and dependency is increasing and that so is the pain and it's not working for them anymore. So a huge population seeking Ibogaine is that population that's not necessarily your um, street addict, for lack of a better word, but the, you know, anybody from any population um, that just happened to get addicted to their pain medications without realizing it. There's no education when you're put on pain medications as to the, you know, nature of addiction, and most people don't realize until they are dependent on their pain medications and they can't get off. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I don't know, this may be a, a more of, a, of an opinion-related question, but is there an, is, would there be a difference in the way that you would treat someone who might be, uh, uh, like you said, like a, more of a street-type street heroin, straight heroin user, you know, long-time heroin user, and a person who becomes addicted to their pain medication? Would the treatment differ? Well, not for short-acting opiates. They're all treated the same. Say somebody who's on oxycodone would be treated the same as somebody who's on heroin. You know, they come in and we stabilize them for two, three days. We give them morphine or oxycodone, and then we detox them. What does differ is when somebody's on methadone or suboxone, because these are very long-lasting drugs that have an extremely long half-life. So we have to switch people from methadone to a short-acting opiate or from buprenorphine to a short-acting opiate for a period of weeks, which can be anywhere from three to eight, and then we detox them. So it's actually harder to get somebody off suboxone and methadone than it is to detox them off heroin. No, I, I believe that. And, and part of that is because those drugs also have, uh, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, they have some measure of, of agonist uh, in them as well. Yeah, and they, they, they have a very high affinity for the opiate receptor, particularly buprenorphine. It's what's considered a very sticky drug, so it's very hard to dislodge from the opiate receptor, so it, just, you know, it stays there. So uh, when you say short, a short-acting opiate, what would, like what would that be? So they would have to get back on oxycodone okay. before we can treat them. Okay. Yeah. Well, I understand that. So they 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 actually use an opiate to get off of a, a drug that's used as a substitute for opiates. It gets pretty convoluted, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I see. And then after that, the treatment is the same. Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. All right. We're going to take a short break and listen to a little Delta City Blues by Michael Brecker. We'll be right back with you after our little musical intermission. See you in a minute.
Thank you. 
back to Recovery Internet Radio. Thanks for being with us here today. I want to get back to our conversation that we're having. Uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, Chris. And um, we'll, we'll hopefully kind of pick up where we left off here. One of the one of the questions I had, uh, and, and I, probably this is more directed to you, uh, Martin, but that would be how does ibogaine work? Uh, chemically, and I think you explained a little bit about that. But can you give us a little, a little bit of a fuller picture about how it actually works? Sure. Ibogaine works on 50 different neuroreceptors and has effects on serotonin, dopamine, and the opioid receptor systems. It is metabolized by the liver into a substance called noribogaine, and this is the active metabolite. This is the component of the ibogaine which treats the withdrawal. The, Ibogaine is a psychoactive component, which causes the visionary state. So say, so say, say that again. Repeat that for me. What's the, la the last thing you said? So Ibogaine is a psychoactive component of the medicine. Okay. And this, this causes a visionary state. So Ibogaine has a visionary component to it. It's um, classified as a hallucinogen. Okay. A but the experience that patients report is more of a dreamlike state where they're awake in the dream and they're experiencing information from their subconscious and they're they're able to address you know past trauma and to deal with psychological issues related to their addiction and to their use so it would be almost like the the there there would be a certain openness in that state to have to to allow those experiences to maybe to for the person to go deeper than they could in a conscious state Yes, not only that, it, it helps them go over issues that they consider important to them and that have been pivotal in, in their addiction. Mm -hmm. We treat many patients who have a history of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. and they're able to go back and see that almost like an observer who's you know floating in the room and they see what happened, but they see it through the eyes of an adult. So they're able to recontextualize it and you know be at peace with it or let it go or or just move forward with their lives because it's often not the initial trauma which is causing the addiction, but it's, it's the, the thoughts and the, the memories and the fact that they're thinking about it every single day that they're living of it. Yeah, exactly. And there's some, there's, there are some therapy techniques like EMDR, uh, for instance, eye, eye movement uh, desensitization that do have that same have that same uh, theoretical base that uh, to get a di to get a different view of the of that of that trauma a, a more detached view of that trauma over time little by little until it's almost like you're looking at it through through a a window at a TV happening to somebody else you know it's a it's that whole detachment process that seems to be the healing part right so um, and do do clients report this to you? I mean, have you heard that, that them verbalize what you're what you're telling me as their experience? Is that where this is coming from? Yeah, generally during the experience, it's a very introspective state where people just lie in their beds and they don't really verbalize about what's going on. Mm -hmm. it, the days afterwards, when they talk to Deanne and they talk to the therapist that we work with, that they they express what they saw and what the what the visions were. 
So I'll let Deanne. Okay, good good segue. Good, good segue. Go ahead, Deanne. So what happens then? Yeah. Because this is, you know, every week I talk to people after they come out of the treatment and, you know, the specific results vary from person to person, but consistently people share astonishing results. Um, you know, common things are that, I mean, pretty much everybody will share that it is much easier than any other detox experience that they've tried. Um, people pretty consistently, pretty much everyone says there's no withdrawals, uh, there's no physical cravings, and in most cases, there's no mental cravings or even desires to use. So these are the best case scenarios, and it's uh, pretty common to see. Um, people come out saying that they have a better understanding of their addiction, um, they have a better understanding of their blocks and what was holding them back, and you know how they can move forward now and the changes they need to make. Um, it's pretty common to have this uh, sense of freedom, this sense of liberation, you know, and relief. A lot of people talk about the feeling of a new beginning or a fresh start. Um, you know, people talk about the, the increased uh, motivation and energy and hope and faith and just, you know, starting the recovery process. I mean, to most people, recovery is just daunting in how the process unfolds. Traditionally, it's very painful, but after Ibogaine, it's like this, you know, slate has been cleaned and the person can really connect with their true self and has been able to accept, you know, what has happened and where things are at and better able to piece the, you know, action steps moving forward into smaller chunks so that it's more manageable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, other really common things that people talk about after their Ibogaine experience is just, you know, having more meaning and purpose in life. You know, during the experience, it's very common for people to connect with their core values and, again, their, their true self and really see how they may have gotten off track in their life. So afterward, you know, pretty much everyone will talk about this clarity, just being so clear in their mind and knowing exactly what it is that they need to do, which really opens them up to therapy and doing the work afterwards because now they can see what their responsibility is in recovery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, and happiness, too. I mean, this is a big part of, you know, people's experience post-Ibogaine is just this emotional balancing, this emotional stability and, you know, sometimes those negative emotions still come up for people, but it's in a much milder form, and it's easier for them to to manage that and understand that. One of the things that um, I've noticed with opiate addicts is that there's a lot of fear associated. It's out of, I guess, out of balance would be the, would, would fit with your terminology. The fear is is actually more about the what will happen to me without the drug and and will I and will I get sick you know you know it's 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 just a you know they're they're the you know I call it junkie fear but you know probably not a particularly kind term but that's it's it's a it's an out of uh, uh, out of balance sense of fear have you do you see that in people as they come in and then do you see the do you see that being relieved afterwards well when they come in there there's always fear and apprehension and some people you know they're they're, they're afraid this might not work 
So there, there is that, that, you know, concern. But that is very quickly alleviated. It, it's, but it's a process. So the day right after I begin, they don't feel great. It's, it's actually pretty uncomfortable. So it's, it's, it's not right away that they, they see the benefits. It's on the third day where they really start feeling good. Okay, and let me. Uh, um, this is. I want to back up and, and ask something that I that I missed, and that is that the my understanding is that the that the raw material, the iboga that the that the natives used, had some pretty pretty uncomfortable side effects, but that uh, iboga was then refined into ibogaine, and I I think you have a particular product that you use. Is that? Can you explain that a little bit? How that happened and how how it's been refined and how and maybe the safety aspect. Mm-hmm. So, iboga is the actual medicine which they use in Africa, and over the years we have used different extracts of iboga, and they have a number of alkaloids, twelve alkaloids to be exact, and one of the alkaloids is called ibogaine, which is the active ingredient. And the more refined the, the medication, the, the less side effects. So when you use extracts of iboga, you tend to see more effects on the heart, more nausea, more vertigo. And over the last couple of years, a, a pharmaceutical product has become available, which is just a pure molecule, and it's 99.8% pure. It's made in Canada by a company called Phytostem. Mm-hmm. And we have seen that it has much less side effects than, than the, the extracts of the plant. I see. In terms of safety, there still has to be continuous cardiac monitoring. You still have to select your patients very carefully and make sure that they're not on any medications that are going to interact with Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. And this is always a risk because you, you're dealing with patients who are, who are just, they're very used to lying, not, not even consciously. They, they, they don't think much of it to deny that they're on a antidepressant and and this this could be potentially fatal if, if you're not careful I see so you have to be very careful in 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 uh, your interview process and in your your admissions process into your into your program yes and also stabilizing patients and making sure they have a cardiac workup before treatment just to make sure that they don't have any medical conditions which which could you know, be be risky during the detox. Okay. All right. Yeah, I wanted to, because I, I, that's sort of a, a question that was on my mind earlier, but I just wanted to get back to that. But I, I want to get back to the treatment and, well, maybe just one quick thing, and that would be, are there are there still some side effects even with the, even with the, uh, the, the relatively pure uh, extract? There are. I mean, the most common thing we see is... Um, Nausea, mm-hmm. ataxia, which is an inability to coordinate body movement, but this this lasts only for about six hours and then it, it starts diminishing. Mm-hmm. So there are no long-term side effects. It's it's only on the acute phase mm-hmm. where you where you have these effects. Okay, I see. And um, so um, then, how would you say? And maybe this is a question for Deanne. How would you say uh, ibogaine treatment is different from other forms of treatment? And also, 
how does it coexist with other forms of treatment? That's kind of a that's kind of two questions combined. So see what you can do with that. <laughs> yeah, great question. You know, um, first of all, ibogaine is a one-time treatment, so this is always a question people ask, as opposed to like suboxone, methadone, or naltrexone, which are ongoing treatments. Um, another thing is the whole ibogaine experience, minus the extended aftercare that is provided, is one week long. So you're not checking into a residential center for weeks or months on end. It's you know it's one week, sometimes two weeks if, if necessary. Um, ibogaine can interrupt addiction in one night. I mean, what other medication in the world or detox can really interrupt addiction like ibogaine in one night? I mean, we really haven't seen it. Um, Ibogaine skips the withdrawals and really eliminates the cravings. Again, we don't know anything um, out there that can just skip the withdrawal process and the cravings altogether. Um, Ibogaine, you know, I mean, Martine can talk more on this too, but it really resets the brain and the neural pathways back to an original state before the person became addicted. And this is just you know, phenomenal to to watch even from an outside perspective without even being able to examine the brain. Um, so and then as we were talking about earlier... Yeah, that, that certainly speaks to its difference. Yeah. There's, there's, in other words, there's really nothing like it. Yes, correct. And then, you know, what's really exciting for me as a recovery coach working with people afterwards is that I begin really unlocks those inner answers and solutions, you know, and really helps the person become their own healer. Um, It has this ability, as we shared, to go back into a person's past and really unlock, you know, um, blocks or barriers in the subconscious and really just provide an opportunity for a person to navigate their psyche and, you know, observe what is going on in their mind and in their patterns overall. Do people need... Uh, generally, I mean, I don't know that everybody is necessarily the same here, but do people need an ongoing way to process that, that those insights, or, or is that generally not necessary? I would say that it's highly advisable that people do some form of aftercare, mm-hmm. whether it's visual counseling or AA, you know, whatever works for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of processing, we, we have an on-site counselor that helps prepare patients for the experience, helps them set their intentions for the journey, and then helps them deal with material which, which has come up from the subconscious. And then after they leave, they, they are able to be in touch with recovery coaches, which is the end area. Okay. Yeah, so to answer. For a couple of your questions there, I mean, Ibogaine treatment is the tool in the bigger picture of addiction treatment and recovery. You know, it's certainly not uh, end-all, be-all medication as I think some people hope or (laughs) go into it weighing their experience on Ibogaine. So our role, and my role specifically, is really to help raise awareness and educate people on the importance of looking at the bigger picture of recovery and incorporating all of the recovery supports that are available to a person within their community. So again, working with their community counselors, their psychiatrists, getting involved in community support groups, um, getting involved in volunteer work and service work. Um, Some of them do go back to treatment or to IOP. It's a different 
you know, for each person, but Ibogaine really helps a person open up and accept help and really help them, you know, prepare for all of the other programs that are available to a person. So it absolutely, you know, resonates and aligns very well with the other traditional and non-traditional programs that are out there. Yeah, um, and that speaks to the question that one of the questions that I that I had meant to ask you, which really you answered before I asked, and that is, you know, is there any concern that people will see ibogaine as what I term the magic bullet, and and then, you know, and then not because it's so effective in terms of its detox capacity and it opens opens you up so in such a gentle and good way that that would be all, you know, that that might, they might think that that would be the end of the work. Yeah, that, there is that risk, and people do come in sometimes expecting, you know, the magic bullet to take care of all their problems. And so we always emphasize that this is not a cure for addiction. This is an addiction interruption. And, you know, the detox is one part of it, but the actual work comes afterwards. So yeah. the, the hard part is, you know, staying clean. Getting clean with Ibogaine is easy, but actually maintaining sobriety, that takes a lot of work. And it's, um, it's, it's often a challenge because people feel great after Ibogaine and they just want to rush home and they don't feel like enrolling in any other program. They just want to get on with their life. Sure, but then sure. when they get home, whatever wreckage they left behind, you know, is still there. So, and they have a lot of problems dealing with that if, if they don't have a plan in place before they come in. Yeah, and that's one of the things I assume that aftercare helps them address is to have a plan. Absolutely. And, you know, we really even heavily promote pre-care as well, you know. So when somebody is interested in signing up for Ibogaine, we sign them up with a recovery coach and start that pre-recovery program before they even go down to their experience to address the ambivalence and the fears and the resistance um, to help prepare them for recovery um, and the and the work on their behalf, because part of the addictive mindset is looking for something in the external world to solve their problems. And so, you know, educating people that, you know, Ibogaine will do its job. I mean, undoubtedly it does its job, but helping people see what their responsibility and recovery will be. Do you do, do you do the pre uh, the pre care and the post care or is those are two two separate things? Yes, we do. And again, a lot of our patients are coming from other centers. And so sometimes, you know, their own counselors and their own treatment providers in their community are helping with the pre and post care. But we absolutely do offer it as well um, through our recovery coaching program, um, you know, and through our online program. Because people are coming from all over North America and sometimes the world. So they're starting from home or they're starting from their residential center. And, you know, we will pair them with a recovery coach and get them enrolled in the online program so that they can start going through, you know, daily modules. It really depends on where they're at and what they're looking for. Okay. Um, another question I had for you is um, because, um, because Ibogaine treatment has been um, marginalized, I, you know, does that make it difficult of course, it's not it, it's you know it, it's not an it's not an unscheduled substance in in uh, uh, Mexico where you are. But um, have you come under any difficult you know criticism or um, professional criticism 
And if so, how do you handle that? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, honestly, people are pretty mesmerized and intrigued by it, surprisingly. And, and for us doing aftercare, we have a team of recovery coaches. You know, we don't send people to Ibogaine. I mean, I, you know, people find Ibogaine through their own resources, um, through their own will. They do their own research um, and find it by themselves. So for us, we are simply doing, you know, the aftercare to help support them. Um, and not really getting, you know, overly involved in their decision to do Ibogaine. It is a personal decision, and so it's not something that, you know, we decide for them. Um, and there really hasn't been any direct criticism to aftercare. No, if anything, people agree that if you're going to be doing something like this, it needs to be taken seriously and followed up appropriately. Okay. And what about the Ibogaine treatment itself? Um is, is there has there been any you know is there any difficulties or criticism of that professionally? That's I guess more a question for you, Dr. Palenka. Sure, I mean, I'm, and this comes up all the time. Patients ask us why it's not FDA approved. Yeah. And you know, physicians who are thinking of referring patients, they have concerns about the safety profile. Mm-hmm. So these are these are things which which are important, and I'm I'm glad that people do their research and they they ask about this. Um, but it, it works, and the, the work speaks for itself. And Ibogaine takes away withdrawal. It helps with cravings, and it helps elevate mood. And we don't sell it as a cure. We don't, you know, we don't tell people it's going to solve all their problems. So it's um, so it's easy for you to handle because it because it works. Correct. Okay. Is there an association or uh, of ibogaine treatment providers, or is there some kind of professional group that uh, that meets? Uh, to, uh, I don't know, I, I, don't, I guess whether certification is the word or uh, just a professional organization of, of uh, ibogaine treatment providers? There is. There's one called GIDA, which is Global Iboga Treatment Alliance. Mm-hmm. And there's the organization called MAPS, which is Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mm-hmm. But there's no formal licensing body where Providers get certified or licensed. Okay. Are you, uh, are you involved in either one of those organizations? I, I am part of, of uh, GIDA. And in the past, I, I did work with MAPS. And I'm you know, a proponent of having greater licensing and more transparency into who, who should be giving the medicine. Mm-hmm. What would you say... Uh, your your vision for the future of uh, ibogaine treatment would be what what in you know in five years or in ten years what would you like to see happen? Well, I mean it would be fantastic if ibogaine were used as a first line treatment for opiate addiction. That mm-hmm. uh, instead of being prescribed suboxone, patients are knowledgeable and informed about ibogaine. I would like to see ibogaine be approved. And regulated right now in Mexico, it's it's not illegal, but it's not necessarily approved either. So we're able to use it as physicians because we can use experimental treatment, but there 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 isn't any regulation. So I think that would be beneficial as well. Okay. And finally, I would want I begin to be more widely available to people who don't have you know the financial resources to leave the country. Um, that that would be my my wish. And your your 
your clinic in particular, what would you what 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 is your vision for Crossroads uh, Clinic? Well, to be able to offer you know the comprehensive pre and after care, but also have a residential program where people can stay for for weeks or months, depending on what they would need. So that's that's what we're working on right now. Okay. Um, and I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to let people know how to get in touch with you if you'd like to do that. They could go to our website, which is crossroadsibogaine.com. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to learn about what we offer and to contact us. Great, yeah. And I've checked, uh, of course, I checked your website before we talked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's very informative. So anybody out there who has an interest in this, uh, you know, that's, that's clearly the way to do it. And there's lots of good information available. Um, are there any things uh, that, we've, that you feel like we've missed or that you'd like to say before we uh, close this evening? Um, no. Yeah, we covered quite a bit, you know, so we're just very honored and appreciative to get on the call with you today. I think that Ibogaine is, you know, is an amazing, miraculous, and very powerful tool and technique um, to supplement the whole recovery process. And I encourage people, though, to do their research and, and you know, we can help with that, too. We have a lot of enrollment specialists. If they want to call in and chat with us, we can answer questions and help you know, families identify if the treatment is right for them and what that entire process looks like. Great. Well, you guys have been, been uh, uh, I think, articulate about, about the subject and helpful and given us a lot of good information. And, and I think it, it, exactly if people, uh, if people are interested, now they know how to go about that. And it's good to know that people can either call you or contact you through your website and, uh, and get more information. So thank you for uh, being uh, being with us and uh, giving us all that good information. Really appreciate your time. And uh, so I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Uh, Martine Polenko and Deanne Adamson, aftercare specialist with the clinic, with Crossroads Clinic. I want to also thank our listeners uh, for making us a successful little underground support source for the recovering community. We'll email out our reminders for next week's show, and as always, we'll try to look at recovery from a wide and open perspective. So check recoveryinternetradio.com for all of our archive shows and to get on our email reminder list, which we send out weekly. And uh, remember, too, that we want to hear from you so we know where our listeners are, and now maybe we'll have some listeners from uh, uh, Mexico. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> Uh, so as, as always, uh, live today, love yourself and your neighbor, and together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next Sunday evening.